Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. This is, you know, I've said this before, but but this this is a a really, really weird one. It's a story that may be unfamiliar to a lot of people, uh, unless, of course, you're a fan of sideshows. I don't do people still go to sideshows? I mean, it's certainly not particularly politically correct anymore. Uh, you're Ben still, though, right? Not a proprietor of a sideshow. Yeah, and you're Noel. Uh-huh, I am. Uh, I mean, I think the closest thing we've got today would be like a Ripley's Believe It or Not situation where maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some, some things in there that could be classified as that, but they're not human beings. They're dioramas or recreations or, you know, just a historical kind of exhibit. But yeah, man, uh, sideshows, uh, problematic <laughs> and fascinating <laughs> things. Yes, yes, to say the least. I I was also captivated by Ripley's Believe It or Not. I think for people in our generation, that, that was probably, to your point, the closest that a lot of us came to sideshows. Uh, we have to, as always, ask our super producer, Casey Pegram. Before we begin today's show, Casey, I, I know you're coming in blind with this one. Uh, what, what's your take on sideshows? I'm just thinking about Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons. That was uh, one association <laughs> that popped up immediately. But yeah, I, I'm pretty much uh, where you guys are. Like Ripley's Believe It or Not, The Wax Museum, things you do at Destin Beach on vacation. Those are kind of the mm -hmm. vibes I'm getting. So I never saw like a, a genuine sideshow, probably for the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, usually somewhere near the airbrush t-shirt stand where you can get like a dolphin jumping over a sunset. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. A shell. Uh, that is painted in some bizarre color. 
I, I like the beach life. I like the, the boardwalk snacks. Today, we are talking about something that happened on boardwalks. Early boardwalk sideshows. Now, today, in 2020, as we know, sideshows often have this terrible historical reputation because there would be people who had some sort of disability, right? Or some sort of visually striking difference about themselves. That's right. And I mean, you know, it's complicated because oftentimes while those folks were reviled and ridiculed as part of those, it was a society that would have shunned them to such a degree that they probably wouldn't have been able to find gainful employment in any other way. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Well, while it was definitely, you know, uh, it makes me think of why people had a real problem with that movie, The Greatest Showman, uh, because it really romanticized that whole world. But then there's a very empowered musical number where all the the sideshow uh, oddity individuals kind of band together and talk about how they're beautiful on the inside and stuff. But mm. that movie kind of divided people. I, I quite enjoy the music though. But you know what I'm saying though? Like this is definitely you know they were getting paid probably a pittance, you know, mm-hmm. but they were fed and they were allowed to kind of live within a society or a mini society that would at least kind of accept them as peers. And often there were you know kind of famous ones in terms of individuals like you know you think about the lobster boy and all of that stuff uh but you have sort of categories of sideshow oddity things like pinheads which would have been you know a a pretty crass way of referring to somebody with a developmental condition that caused uh problems with the shape of their skull etc and they kind of had like a pointed skull that's exactly right that's exactly right ben and bearded ladies and things like that. The tattooed man, you know, people that uh, had any kind, any number of outward um, conditions that could have been looked at as, you know, their uh, some kind of mutation or some sort of superpower in a weird way, but not right. in a positive way. I don't know what I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm having a hard time talking about it and trying to stay relatively PC because it is such a, a difficult thing to discuss. Yeah. For a lot of people, uh, the idea of a sideshow instantly conjures images. I know you were probably thinking of this too, Casey, of the 1932 film Freaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Freaks did feature people who had worked as sideshow performers in real life, uh, like the microcephalic uh, Schlitzy, who was billed as the last of the Aztecs. And, and to your point, there would be things like conjoined twins. Uh, there would be things like, as you said, someone with um, differently shaped hands, someone who had three legs, but then there would also be people who were capable of extraordinary feats. Like how many how many people were roaming through the Midwest claiming to be the world's strongest man mm-hmm. or the largest uh, largest person? When we think of this, I think you did a tremendous job explaining some of the the problematic aspects of this. But when we think of sideshows today, we're you know we we have the benefit of retrospect, and we also think in terms of those categories like the tattooed lady, the illustrated man, and so on. But today, we'd like to introduce you to a new type of sideshow exhibit uh, that might surprise you. It turned out for a time in the beginning of the twentieth century. Babies became stars of sideshows for a a very weird reason. But not just any baby. These were specifically babies that were born um, early. 
before the full term of the pregnancy had come to a conclusion. And they're referred to collectively as premature babies. And, you know, folks out there in uh, podcast land may have siblings that are premature, that were born prematurely. Um, There are many reasons that this can happen. Um, Some absolutely just completely a fluke. You never, you can't really predict when it's going to happen. Um, There are obviously more kind of negative and nasty reasons this can happen. Things like drug addiction in the mother. Um, But a lot of times, oftentimes when babies are born prematurely, it has nothing to do with any uh, negative actions of the mother. And it's also more than possible for that baby, uh, they're born quite small, uh, to have a, a completely normal life and become completely healthy. And that is because of some medical technology, specifically something called an incubator. Yes. Uh, one of the main characters of our story today is a Dr. Martin A. Cooney. He knew about incubators. He knew that incubators could play a powerful role in uh, ensuring the health of premature babies. But he also knew that the quote unquote system, you know, the medical establishment and stuff, uh, didn't have much interest uh, in pushing this new technology forward because the incubator was a very new idea at the time. There wasn't a lot of money being put into research for this literally life-saving technology. So he decided that he would hit the streets himself and he built a traveling exhibit that showed audience members premature babies living in incubators For a lot of us, this sounds like a maternity ward, right? Hey, pre-COVID, I could go to a hospital, and if I'm not too creepy, they'll let me walk by that area. They they sure will. Um, not not so much these days. But Cooney's fascination with incubators, you know, came didn't just come like as an overnight thing. It wasn't like the hot new medical device on the street. Um, he studied in Paris under uh, a, a very well respected researcher and um, and physician named. Uh, Pierre Boudin, who was confused as to why, you know, these devices hadn't been adopted more widely. So he actually displayed some incubators in the Berlin World's Fair in 1896. And this was really kind of at the the onset of, of the idea of a fair. It wasn't really what we think of today as, you know, it's sort of devolved into just more of a, you know, place where you can ride a cheap roller coaster. It sort of travels from town to town. Um, there might be some games that you're going to lose your money off of. But at the time, they were really considered these kind of like, almost like what we have today with uh, stuff like CES, uh, which is, you know, the, the the massive electronics convention where new technology is unveiled and all of the different organizations and companies that make technology show up and show their wares all at the same time in, in Vegas. You've been to one of those, haven't you, Casey? We've been to several, Ben and I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to cover... Um Automotive stuff, um, some just kind of general technology. It's uh, multiple convention centers, massive footprint, tens of thousands of booths, I think. Um, Yeah, it's quite something. We, uh, my favorite memory of CES probably is is the the weird night that a group of us in the crew got together and one of us, friend of the show, Dylan Fagan, had never gambled before. And I think Ramsey was the same. And so 
So we set off to try to try to have a Vegas experience. It was ridiculous. Story for another day, but you're right. These things, World Fairs, CES, stuff like the the expos, like the Pan American Exposition, the these were prominent high level affairs. You know what I mean? Like people would go to these things to see the latest innovations. I think your comparison about CES is spot on, Noel. It's it was much these were much more like a big up-and-coming technology kind of convention than they were uh, what you would consider a sideshow today. And that's where these child hatcheries came in. That's what they were called. You, you would, as an audience member, you would pay a dime. And you can see pictures of this, especially uh, there's some great ones on an article from Atlas Obscura. You would pay a dime and you would walk around and observe these babies living happy and hopefully healthy in these incubators. They're much larger, by the way, than the incubators we're familiar with today. And we have to establish at the beginning of this story, the children were not harmed by being in the incubators. They were, um, they were on display. So there's, you know, a wound to their dignity perhaps, but they were able to receive medical care that they otherwise probably would not have received. And this, this is an idea that went through several iterations before our friend Cooney had brought the act to the United States. So let's maybe just, let's stay with the incubators just a little bit and let's describe them. So his baby ha child hatchery or infantorium, as it was called, uh, each incubator in there was about one and a half meters high. They had steel walls, they had a framework, a glass front, so you could observe the children. And they used water boilers to feed warm water into pipes running underneath the babies uh, and thermostats to maintain and regulate temperatures. What we're saying is that the babies overall were safe in these things. That's that's key to this story. Well, I mean, they were more than safe, right? They, they, they really desperately needed this. And that's mm -hmm. because premature babies uh, have a they, – they're, they're incapable of regulating their own body temperatures. And before incubators were a thing, I've, I've read, you know, in researching this and watching – I watched a really interesting PBS – I can't remember what it was called, but it was basically a woman who antique roadshow style was presented with this like silver cup from an event at the at the uh, uh, Chicago World's Fair, um, and it was connected to one of these uh, baby display kind of situations. <laughs> and uh, one of the doctors they interviewed was talking about how um, before there were incubators, doctors didn't know what to do and they didn't have much control. So they would do things like put the babies in shoe boxes and stick them next to a radiator, which sounds really unsafe. Uh, right. So yeah, yeah. These things were uh, revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. And sadly, before the rise of incubators, there would be people who would say, things like, well, the child has to do its best to survive, you know, and that's a terrible thing for you to hear as a parent. And that's where our story leads us to Coney Island. Around the turn of the century, if you headed to Coney Island, you would see, you know, all the usual Coney Island diversions, although I do believe this was for, before Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest, which is one of my favorite things. You could go to a newly opened amusement park called Luna Park, but you might also run into a permanent infantorium, a permanent exhibit of premature babies in these incubators. And Cooney was doing this because 
he needed the funds from these audience members. The technology of incubators for humans was laughed at or roundly dismissed by physicians, uh, even though, as you said, Noel, it, it had a past before. Like People knew the thing would work. It's just, it's sad when you think that for the first five decades of the existence of this incubator, it was functioning mostly as a novelty item. That's right. I mean, you know, we think of incubators in terms of like hatching eggs, you know, from uh, it, it, chicken embryos, let's say. And that's really cool, but not always necessary. It's sort of a little more of like a parlor trick, a scientific parlor trick. Uh, it's not something, you know, when you think of like farmed eggs uh, or even mass produced chicken eggs, it's not something that would be employed in that respect. So I, that's that's an interesting way of putting it, Ben. Although I, I can't help but think of the scene from Jurassic Park with the uh, incubator and the baby velociraptor that he pulls out. It's all covered Ooh. in like blood slime uh, and then kind of makes that little ah, kind of and that's how you know those buggers are evil because the mm -hmm. baby's evil the grown-ups are definitely going to be evil uh, <laughs> yeah you're right but what what isn't cute when it's in that juvenile stage i am clearly biased i'm a jurassic park fan mm -hmm. uh, there's even a holiday called july 6th park by one of my favorite sketch groups, Chris and Jack. So do celebrate it when you get a chance. Your, your point about incubators is absolutely true. It wasn't until the 1880s when Stéphane Tarnier, a French obstetrician, saw these things being used at a zoo and said, hey, if it works on baby chickens, maybe it works on baby humans. And part of the reason the medical establishment did not immediately jump on the baby train here is that they had a long history of prejudice toward premature babies. It was expensive to care for them. And honestly, as horrible as this sounds, a lot of people thought it was pointless because babies born below a certain threshold of birth weight uh, had high mortality. And then physicians also thought this invention that came from watching chickens in a zoo was unscientific. And they didn't believe that it could actually save people's lives. And that's where the guy you mentioned earlier, Pierre, comes in. And he says, why aren't more hospitals investing in this? We can save people. So he started researching the technology in 1888. He kept running into roadblocks for funding. And that's why in 1896, like you said, he wanted to display these incubators at the World's Fair. That's absolutely correct. The World's Fair. Um, you know, you'll recall when we were making that CES comparison and sort of the whole like modern day con and like, you know, whether it's unveiling the newest, uh, uh, you know, smart home technology or what have you. Uh, back in these days, the technology that was being unveiled was like life changing. Really? Well, I mean, not to say that technology today isn't important. If there, there aren't occasionally things that are unveiled, these kind of uh, uh conferences that do change people's lives, but not the same as like the dishwasher or like the the color television, you know, things that like haven't really been replaced. Uh, they've maybe been improved upon. They've maybe been given internet connectivity or you might have like a camera inside your fridge that you can look up on your smartphone in case you can see how much cottage cheese you have left when you're at the grocery store. But uh, it's the game-changing technology in the way that we would see in these industrial, like just post-industrial revolution fairs isn't quite the same today. And you guys completely tell me I'm full of crap if, if you think I'm missing the mark on that. But um, the ones that we that really led the charge were European. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Cement Mobile for details. So Cooney realizes these exhibits can save babies' lives, and, they, and he realizes the public will pay to see this futuristic technology. Eventually, he and Boudin realize that these exhibits are successful enough to make a potential lifesaver for these children. Coney was interested personally in this because he himself was the father of a child born prematurely as daughter. And he reasoned if hospitals don't care for these prematurely born children, then we can crowdsource it. He didn't use the word crowdsource, but that's essentially what he did. In Buffalo, New York in 1901, he built this huge building just for the baby incubator exhibit. He got tons of press, which turned out to be even more important than getting a lot of people in the crowd. And that's how, starting in 1903, you could see the permanent Coney Island Baby Incubator exhibition. Uh, one was at Luna Park, and another one was also in Coney Island at Dreamland. So nurses would tend to the babies, the public would look on in amazement. And the weird thing is, 
this is still kind of uh, like a sideshow. So there is still a carnival barker here. And I wonder what they're saying. Like, the miracle of technology. The baby is born premature through the wonders of our age. We'll be able to live. I love it. It's some, yeah. They had a pitch. I'm sure they worked uh, on oh, it. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, but it's also like, I don't know. The thing about it is like premature babies are cute because they're so bloody small and their eyes are closed. They look like little rabbits or little puppies, you know, that are born when their eyes aren't even open yet. And and they're real skinny. And so like they're on the one hand, they're they're adorable. Babies are cute and everything, but they're also, you know, they're not the most healthy looking. They're a little like you're worried about them. There's a sense of, of, of oh no, is this baby going to be okay? And uh, I wonder, it seems like there was a capitalization on all of those things. Because I don't know, like the pitch likely did not center specifically on the amazing life-saving technology. That is that is just my, uh, uh, my the sense that I get. What do you, what do you think, Ben? Yeah, he definitely, so there were definitely theatrical elements to this, right, that people were going to see. We know that according to a, a book by Don Raffle, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies, Cooney knew the score. You know what I mean? Like, he dressed infants on purpose in too large clothing. Uh, he would he would have nurses slip a finger ring around the entire wrist of a premature child because this was visually appealing, right? And it's it's like people were watching it for the fascination and the little bit a little bit of danger, a little bit of anxiety. Will these children make it? Uh, you know, one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning of this, he used the phrase preemies. In 1939, when he was looking back and talking about this experience, he said, all my life I've been making propaganda for the proper care of preemies who in other times were allowed to die. And that's why he said everything that he did was strictly ethical, kind of a ends justify the means reasoning, if you think about it. And here's the thing, this Coney Island inventorium stuff, huge success. Huge success. Uh, he would charge a couple of cents to get in. And and again, from that PBS uh, little short that I saw, he was apparently raking in about $1,500 a day. Um, but here's the thing. Let, let, you know, I, I think a big part of the success of it in terms of like the viewers wasn't necessarily, it, it was a pleasant thing. It wasn't like a freak show. It wasn't like, look at that weird looking baby. It was because in their incubators, they looked safe and they, they looked cuddly and kind of like, you know, nothing could harm them. And that's sort of comforting, especially when you see something vulnerable that's being cared for. Uh, that That's just a theory. But uh, I think that that likely has something to do with the success because he was making that kind of money every day and this was a permanent installation at coney islands luna park um and he while he charged people to see it he didn't charge the parents of the babies to put them in there so what does that mean this is a very complicated individual like on the one <laughs> hand he's doing this thing that on the surface could seem kind of exploitive of 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 these uh you know um unfortunate uh infants that that, that are having difficulty but he's also literally the reason that they're like gonna be okay and he's not charging the parents anything because medical the medical community hasn't fully embraced this technology yet so without him and this sideshow he likely, they, these, a lot of these babies likely wouldn't have survived. Yeah, it's true. They have made a lot of money. And 
it went to the children. We know that in 1903, it cost $15 a day to care for each individual baby. That's around $405 a day in these are modern times. And he Cooney was able to cover all the cost through the entrance fees alone. But because he was operating in a sideshow setting rather than the maternity ward of a hospital, people viewed him with suspicion and some folks outright hated this guy. Folks like the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, they accused him multiple times of exploiting the babies, endangering their lives, putting them on display. But none of these complaints really hurt the endeavor. And by the 1930s, people were coming around and they were saying, you know, this guy is a medical pioneer. That's right. He's on to something. Um, is, is it, I, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but one of those uh, prevention, you know, of cruelty to children organizations said something like, how dare you, sir, take a vulnerable small child and put them in the tawdry chaos of the midway, you know, like something along those lines. Like it was like he was he was being a bad influence, like these babies were going to accidentally get drunk or something or catch a whiff of cigarette smoke. Right, exactly. And so if you happen to see the World's Fair in Chicago in 1933 and 34, lasted more than a year, it's like 18 months, it'd be tough to miss Cooney's display. You would see this huge sign that says like, living babies in incubators. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, apparently it was quite a massive sign. And I see them categorized as being, by the Smithsonian article that we looked at as uh, the letters being so large, they could be read from across the entire uh, fairground, which was massive. This was the Chicago World's Fair. This was like the America's big, like this is us. We are at the pinnacle of uh, technological discovery, of, you know, pushing the narrative forward. And uh, this was no exception. So you'd think something like the incubator with all the amazing things we said about it, all the amazing research um, would be like in the main hall. Next to the automobile, you know, right? Uh, or the but, dip and dots. Or yeah. whatever. But that wasn't the case because uh, it really continued the same tradition as his previous iteration of this as kind of like on the midway, right? Which they definitely had at the World's Fair. In fact, this booth was right next to one featuring the famous, scandalous Sally Rand, who was known, who was a burlesque dancer, uh, known for her ostrich feather fan dance and also balloon bubble dance and um, really like got arrested multiple times uh, charged with like all kinds of levels of indecency and they had her right next to the premature baby exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair. Exactly. Yeah. And these incubators, of course, if we're talking turkey here, uh, they were not inexpensive as you might imagine. Uh, the exhibit itself was, uh, I think, the entire cost of it was $75,000 back then, which is around $1.4 million today. Yep. Uh, and, and the price went up too over time as it, as it became more respected in the public and the zeitgeist. I believe by the time it was in Chicago, the audience members paid 25 cents to see the exhibit and they flocked there by the hundreds of thousands Eventually, this leads to Cooney having a homecoming celebration on July 25th, 1934. 
And this is kind of, I rarely say this word, but this is kind of cute. It was for the babies who had graduated from the incubators at the Chicago World's Fair that past summer. And this was broadcast live on local radio and across the fairgrounds. So people were able to see the results of this incubation technology at work. And you got to think how amazing it is. It's got to be a warm, fuzzy feeling if you saw these exhibits earlier and then you hear this story and you think, you know, I, in some way, whether through a dime or a quarter, helped these kids live. It's certainly the uh, surprise twist payoff. You know, I don't like, again, it really seems that the, at the very least, I mean, what is it? Real live incubated babies. You know, it <laughs> doesn't necessarily uh, scream charity, um, but he almost was like secretly uh, getting these folks to contribute to the well-being of these children, even if that wasn't front and center uh, in the in the whole you know concept of the of the exhibit. Um, he also like had it all schmaltzed up in like red, white, and blue. And, you know, he had nurses running around wearing like starched white kind of uniforms. And the whole thing was very, uh, there was a lot of pageantry to it. It's very interesting, but, uh, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You might be asking yourself, Casey, Noel, Ben, why can't I go see a infantorium today? You know, I don't want to see it in a hospital. I want the sideshow experience. I want to eat some funnel cake. I want a little razzle dazzle with my babies, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, this was an era and it did come to an end after decades of caring for these children. 
Cooney was credited in the development of neonatal care in hospitals, but the public got familiarized with it, right? It lost that razzle-dazzle we described. It lost that sense of novelty. And by the early 1940s, people just weren't as interested in the novelty of baby incubators, and hospitals were also starting to open their own units dedicated to the care of premature children. And so in 1943, Cooney closes the show in Coney Island. He lives seven more years. He passes away at the age of 80. The sad story is that he achieved fame, but maybe not financial success. This is, how it, this is what makes me think he wasn't crooked or embezzling. But he was apparently broke when he passed away. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that, but it does make sense. I mean, you know, we're talking a lot of money to buy all these machines and to have the upkeep and to hire the staff. And, you know, it really does feel like perhaps the the price of admission was just going back into the maintenance of, of all this stuff, you know. Uh, and he really did just figure out a clever kind of sneaky way of building like the world's first top of the line neonatal care center. Uh, Cause it wasn't until, you know, folks took notice of the, of the good that he was doing that this technology did really catch on in a much more meaningful way. I, I wanted to backtrack ever so slightly just to point out something interesting that is, is something that uh, was mentioned in the PBS thing that I watched, um, which I, I'm going to give you the name of because it's it was quite good and short and very interesting. Uh, we talked about this in the past that the World Fair had kind of a history of doing odd human displays. If you get my drift, Ben, you remember right. the indigenous peoples display. Very messed up. Very messed up. Like this human zoo almost of folks from, you know, African countries dressed in their, you know, uh, indigenous garb and holding spears. And uh, one particular um, individual was um, uh, eventually put in like a zoo. And then he was forced to like wrestle with a chimpanzee every day until uh, an organization that worked towards uh, black rights uh, shut that down. And then he ended up in a in, in a, uh, a home, kind of like a halfway house situation and took his own life. Uh, not to say that this is anything like that, but if, if my brain moved towards like the exploitativeness of this, that's something that definitely popped in, especially since we had discussed that story before. Yeah, there's another twist here. Cooney had his heart in the right place, but we were very careful, folks, in the way we described him throughout this episode. Let's see, we called him a uh, an entrepreneur, maybe. We implied that, a uh, businessman. We called him a medical pioneer, but there's one thing he wasn't. He was not a doctor. Mm -hmm. Most Dude, likely. Almost, almost certainly. Yeah. Yeah, that would, I did feel like I almost like, did I miss that part? Like, you know, because he, um, yeah, it's true. Uh, he had said that he studied medicine in Berlin and Leipzig, uh, but there was no evidence that he actually, and he, he went by a couple of different names. We know him as Cooney. He went by Cohn, C-O-H-N, also Cohen. Mm -hmm. um, there's no evidence that he actually studied medicine at a university in either of those cities. Um, and, you know, in Germany, to be a, a physician, you have to write a thesis. And, uh, you know, the U.S. National Library of Medicine has copies of all of the German records and have, have thus far been able unable to locate a thesis written by Cooney. Yeah, he was also 
super, super sketchy about the specifics of his personal life, which, you know, I respect. Uh, he was evasive about his date of birth and where he was born. Later research showed that he immigrated to the U.S. in 1888 at the age of 19. But the problem with that is someone of that age would not have been old enough to be at university in Berlin and Leipzig before going on to do grad work in Paris. Uh, he claimed to be the inventor of an incubator, but there's no evidence that he registered a patent uh, in 1910. He listed his career as, get this, surgical instruments. And then by, okay. right, by 1930, he described himself in the census as a physician. So if he had been caught doing any of that, falsely you know, pretending to be a doctor, that's, that's breaking the law. He could have gone to prison. And the weird complex part about that is this means almost certainly many of those children would have died. Yeah, that's right. We've been kind of saying that all along and, and uh, not to belabor the point, but because the whole thing is just kind of a head scratcher, right? Like on the one hand, he did something that was real, real cool, you know, had a real yeah. positive impact. By the way, off mic, while, while Ben was uh, making an amazing point, um, I looked up what this PBS clip was, and it's from a show or a series uh, called History Detectives from season seven, episode four. Uh, it's a 16 minute, 50 second clip uh, about sideshow babies. And basically, this all starts with a woman who wants to know if the silver baby cup that she got from the 1933 Chicago's World's Fair with her name engraved on it, Patricia, uh, if there was her mother claimed that she was whisked away from her home as a premature baby um, who was literally being kept in a shoebox by the radiator, like we talked about, uh, and taken uh, to an incubator at the 1933 uh, Chicago World's Fair. And this episode starts off with, is this even true? She has no evidence of this being true. The woman does recognize that the silver cup is, in fact, a genuine artifact from the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. It had the right logo and everything. It turns out that these cups were given to those, quote unquote, graduates that we talked about. And she was, in fact, one of the babies that were that, you know, and again, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of babies mm -hmm. because this was like the show. What did you say? It lasted a year. The Chicago World's Fair? Yeah, 18 months. 18 months. So uh, and I don't want to spoil the whole thing for you, even though I kind of just spoiled a part of it. But there's a lot more information. This. I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, just about like a lot of good imagery from the time, uh, archival stuff. And you get to see, uh, you get to go a little deeper into it visually than obviously you can do on a podcast. But she ends up very pleased that she was that this happened. Uh, it starts off a little questionable, and then she ends up being very thankful that that you know she didn't think she would have survived if not for uh, for this gentleman. And that's been a journey like that for I think both of us too. Bad it's from ups and downs in terms of whoa WTF to oh it's heartwarming. <laughs> Back to yeah. you know somewhere in the middle when we found out that he wasn't really a doctor, but at some point he retired and just said, "My work here is done. I've saved Ooh. enough babies." Yeah, he claimed an 85% success rate. There's no way to verify that, but it's still far, far better than uh, 0%, right? Or than these poor children having to be left to the whims of fate. And with that in mind, we say hats off to you, Cooney. You're, uh, you're a bit sketchy. That's true. It is a bit of a roller coaster worthy of Coney Island, uh, but you made the world 
a better place. So I would I would say uh, thanks to him. You know, thanks for making sideshows a little more wholesome. Yeah. And I would also argue that in those days, sometimes a little healthy sketch goes a long way. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you, sometimes you had to get it in where you could, and he definitely had a plan. And, uh, you know, as evidenced by the fact that he did retired with very little money, certainly wasn't a money-making scheme. It was much more of like a, his life's work. And I don't know, like, I don't know if this is quite enough for like a big full bio, pick but i definitely think that he deserves a place in the history of uh of of medicine even if he wasn't an actual doctor and so that's our show today thank you as always for tuning in big big thanks to super producer casey pegram and i forgot to ask you guys where uh did either of you happen to be born prematurely not i um though my daughter's sister uh, was, but only mm. just a little bit. But she did have a little bit of, she had to be put in an incubator for a bit. Uh, and then she was fine. But she had a, she had a little bit of pro- problems breathing. That's a thing that happens mm. too. If they're underdeveloped, mm. they have to, you know, get a little extra help. Um, so yeah, it was definitely scary, but less so knowing that this tech was out there. Yeah. What about you, Casey? I had a friend growing up. I was born on his due date and he was born on mine, but it was only a difference of like four <laughs> days. So that's not really premature. So I can't, I can't really lay claim to that. No, that's pretty cool. I was the opposite. I was born two weeks late and I'm still catching up. Uh, <laughs> I was enormous. Uh, <laughs> but we want to hear from you. You can find us all over the internet, the Instagrams, the Twitter bulls, the, uh, Facebookeries. Just go uh, check out Ridiculous Historians on Facebook. We'd love to recommend that one. You can see some sick memes. You can see your fellow listeners uh, both m- mocking both my crippling phobia of metal and uh, my, my pal Noel's fear of birds uh, in, in a very good-hearted, wholesome way. Usually. 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 <laughs> no, we love every single one of the folks over there, Ridiculous Historians, and you can be one of them too and be the recipient of our love. All you got to do is go to Facebook, uh, enter Ridiculous Historians, and enter one of our names, all three, uh, an, a joke, a dad joke, some reference so we know that you're alive and breathing and not some sort of creepy bot trying to infiltrate our precious community. Um, you can do that. You can also find us on social media or Ridiculous History. Uh, if you want, you can also find find Ben and I uh, as human people on our own uh, social meds. I am at How Now Noel Brown on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Bullen HSW. You can also find me on Instagram. Uh, as I always say, in a burst of creativity, I'm at Ben Bolin. Thanks, of course, to the quizster Jonathan Strickland, who uh, we need to get back on the show at some point soon. He's busy. He's he's learning guitar, actually. I think he's okay if we tell people that. Uh, and thanks, of course, to Alex Williams, our official uh, slap and bop, bop and slap maker. Thanks, Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Uh, Gabe Lugier, researcher extraordinaire. I'll thank Jonathan Quiz. Did you think Jonathan Quister? That's what I'm going to start calling him now. Just Jonathan, like Jonathan Swift. I'm just going to start calling him Jonathan Quister. I think that works. Uh, If you did thank him, I'm thanking him again. If you didn't, consider this the first time with double the love. It's Friday, y'all. 
We're not entirely here. We've been checked out for about the last 15 minutes. We're giving it our level best. Speak um, for yourself. <laughs> I was paying attention. <laughs> hey, when I say we, I mean the royal we, as in this, okay. this guy right here with the two with the two thumbs and the and the, uh, and the glut of dad jokes. Uh, I'm going to tell you a secret. Give it to before, me before before you get off the air. I've been I've been uh, I made a I made a cocktail. And I've just been staring at it off screen <laughs> for when we wrap. Ben, what is it? What is it? It's an old fashioned. <gasps> I'm going to go get an old fashioned too, Ben. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy one with you in spirit up there in the clouds, floating with Christopher Hasiotis uh, and, and our uh, spirit uh, uh, old fashions. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.